Hey folks, it's another episode of CC's Word. Before I get started with this episode, I want to just really uh, just preface it. First off, we are on the eve of the uh, inauguration of Joseph R. Biden III becoming the next president of the United States. I believe he's the third. Could be wrong there. I know that the rest of the name is correct, so I'm sorry if I didn't get the number of Joseph R. Biden's correct. But, you know, folks, the uh, the only thing I'll say is I'm very cautiously optimistic about the future. I've uh, gone through many times the record of Joe Biden on this podcast, why I'm skeptical of his administration, and I've expressed my concerns over some of the policies that have been put forward by them and some of the, uh, some of the cabinet nominees that have been made. Uh, but <clears throat> I'm going to give him the chance to lead. Um, I'm going to give him the chance to lead. But that does not mean we're going to let up the pressure in the sense of the, uh, it's like I had the podcast last week, folks. Uh, <clears throat> what I said was like, we, we have to keep that same energy in the sense of the uh, advocacy, the mobilizing, the you know, the strategizing and the, the organizing, working toward what is best for the middle class and low income people in this country has got to be the priority. And um, and so I'm very excited to uh, to really just see where things will go, because I think that the general consensus with a lot of people and a lot of groups is kind of what I just said, where we'll give Biden the chance to leave, but the pressure is not going to stop because there's an immense amount of pain happening in this nation. And uh, we've got to really make some changes in government in the way um, <coughs> policies are implemented. We have to really assure that what is best for the majority of the American people is put forward, but also not just what is best for the majority of American people, but what is best for a future that is more equitable and more truly free and uh, and one way, where in which we can really uh, have the pursuit of happiness that is supposed to be uh, endowed upon us by the Creator according to the Declaration of Independence. It's a, an inalienable right, folks. It's a right that cannot be taken away. It should not be taken away by any government or any institution. Yet, sadly, it has been taken away from so many of this country's citizens. So, let's see if we can really start to change that. Let's see if we can make that pursuit of happiness something that uh, that is not only something like... Let's make sure that the happiness is not only something that people can pursue, right, but also is something that is attainable and is actually uh, a a reality in their life because they have seen a substantive material reality improvement for them um, through governing. And Joe Biden has the opportunity to do that. I'm optimistic because I think that with people like Biden on the, or excuse me, I said Biden, with people like Bernie on the uh, Senate Budget Committee and uh, 
and you've got the the squad and and the house and I think that they you know people like Cory Bush in particular people like um Jamal Bowman and uh and Nina Turner who's running for a house seat in Ohio if Nina Turner was to get elected I think her voice in combination with Cory Bush Jamal Bowman and the rest of the squad is really going to have to be the the people to really make the voices of uh, the people who want a more progressive government, a more uh, economically fair uh, nation. And uh, the only way we can make that happen is it's it's at least through government is through them, right? Or began to challenge these people who are not working for the best interest of the American people. I'm talking about people like, you know, your Nancy Pelosi's, your your Chuck Schumer's, your your uh, Joe Manchin's, a West Virginia senator that I covered last week too, who who was a pretty much moderate Democrat that is is almost really just a, a Republican um, because he he feels that he has to be a conservative Democrat and. Um, people of West Virginia are, are hurting and uh, are, are really, I feel, uh, longing for a new direction in the way government works. And uh, we're going to try to assure that people are working toward that in Washington. And if they aren't, we got to get them out, folks. And uh, that includes President Joe Biden, President-elect. So <clears throat> let's see, guy. When I say, let's see, guy, I'm talking to Joe Biden. Let's see what he does. Let's see how things go. Best of luck to you, because you're going to be my president, whether I like it or not. And uh, I'm going to trust you to have the best intentions of our people in mind. And uh, I'm going to give you a shot. But uh, I'll be there to hold you accountable, and I hope that you all are as well. When uh, when he fails us, if he fails us, right? But folks, the uh, shout out that I want to give is to the Poor People's Campaign. You can go to the Poor People's Campaign dot org to learn more about them. They have fourteen policy agendas that are major in my mind, and ones that must be. The priority uh, for a new administration, and uh, at least a priority or, or fourteen priorities, right for a new administration. So the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. That's the full title of this movement, and uh, the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for revival, has put forward fourteen policies. Uh, that should be priorities within the first 100 days of Joe Biden. This is what they're calling on, that they implement these 14 policies in their first 100 days. And I'm going to talk about this until Joe Biden's first 100 days are over, uh, because I'd like to see them happen as well. And um, those 14 policies are enact comprehensive, uh, comp- comprehensive and just COVID-19 relief. 
that provides free testing, treatment vaccines, and direct payments to the poor. Guarantee quality health care for all, regardless of any pre-existing conditions. Raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Update the poverty measure. And what that means is the poverty measure is, I believe right now, six at like 1200 or 12, 12,000 or 12,500. Uh, the idea is like if a household makes 12,500 or 12,000 or less, they are cons- that is the poverty line and like anyone making below that is considered in poverty uh, in in like the the federal kind of revenue system. That's how that's how the the measurement of poverty works. That should be definitely be updated because there's a lot of people that on paper make more than $12,000 but they aren't living any better than people that are making $12,000 or less. So, uh, the fifth priority is guarantee quality housing for all. So the sixth priority is enact a federal jobs program to build up investments, infrastructure, public institutions, climate resilience, energy efficiency, and socially beneficial industries and job in poor and low-income communities. Number seven, protect and expand voting rights and civil rights. Number eight, guarantee safe, quality, and equitable public education with supports for protection against resegregation, which some of that's happening in places around this country, even here in Alabama. Number nine, comprehensive and just immigration reform. Number 10, ensure all of the rights of indigenous people. Number 11, enact fair taxes and targeted tax credits especially to those that may need it best, most, such as low-income individuals. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, folks. Number 12, use the power of executive orders, which that's all they say. But um, the the power of executive orders, what they mean by that, I believe, is there's a lot the president can do directly without Congress, such as rescheduling marijuana or uh, granting pardons to, uh, and this is more of an executive action than executive order, but granting pardons to nonviolent detainees in prisons and uh, people that have been placed with long sentences that are clearly unfair. Let's try to get them out if they can, Mr. President. You can make that happen. And, uh, and again, number twelve for them is use the power of executive orders. So there's just there's a lot to 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 put into that. But just uh, research, folks. Look, Google how much the president can do through executive order. It'll 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 amaze you. A lot of it can be challenged in court, but also a lot of it can be uh, unsuccessfully challenged in court. Right? That there there'll be cases that may be heard, but it will be hard to actually defeat. Uh, and also the federal government. It's pretty good at winning court cases when they want to. And unless it is a court case that, you know, it's it's clearly like the times the federal government has lost court cases, it's just instances where there's clear violations of the Constitution. Um, many executive orders that Biden could do to alleviate some of the suffering for people that need it most in this country um, would be through executive order, uh, he can do that. And 
it uh, would be pretty difficult to challenge and pro- most likely would fail uh, in a court case uh, in, in many instances. Uh, but you also run the risk of it could just easily be reversed by the next president. Uh, number 13, redirect the bloated Pentagon budget towards those these priorities as matters of national security. And 14, work with the PPC, the Poor People's Campaign, to establish a permanent presidential council to advocate for this bold agenda. And I believe that the reason why they say that at the end of 14 is because, you know, this is 14 or, or really 10 to 13 policies that they want to see put forward by Joe Biden. But these are not the only policies that the Poor People Campaign, a national call for moral revival, is advocating for. There are many, many other policies that they put forward, and uh, I stand with them as much as I can, and I do uh, all that I can to to promote their work, and uh, and, and they have a Poor People's Campaign um, branch here in Alabama, and uh, I encourage you all to reach out to them and see how you can be a help. But, folks, I hope you enjoy the episode with uh, Tyler Ruzik here, a good friend of mine from back in the day. We uh, we, we really, honestly, we reconnected kind of in the, in the last uh, kind of about week or so when we decided to, uh, to have this podcast. And so I'm excited to have him on. Folks, I hope you enjoy this conversation. This is uh, the, the major achievement I always like to point out with Tyler is he was a uh, 2018 gubernatorial candidate. Uh, he ran in the Republican primary, uh, and you'll get to hear from him. And I hope you enjoy the show, folks. Uh, tomorrow, the presidency of Joe Biden begins, and uh, let's see if uh, he will answer the call from the Poor People's Campaign to begin a moral revival for this country. So, you have a good one, folks. What's going on, everyone? This is another episode of CC's Word. I'm uh, excited to have a very good guest on today. Uh, by the name of Tyler Ruzik, and uh, Tyler is someone who uh, has had an interest in uh, career in politics already. <laughs> but uh, he's someone that I've uh, I met a few years ago, and, I, and and since then we've talked on and off about the political happenings in our country. Uh, and I'm glad to have him on the program this evening. So, Tyler, you introduce yourself to the crowd a bit. Yeah. Well, Calvin, thank you so much for uh, bringing me on here. You know, I remember when you first started this this podcast and I was, you know, so supportive and to kind of see what it's become and to uh, see the conversations that you have had. Um, you know, with it previously for this podcast, um, I think people can gather so much from. So, you know, I just want to thank you for bringing me on here. And, you know, I'm, I'm overall just excited to be a guest here and, and, you know, to reconnect, have a good conversation with my, with a friend of mine. And, and uh, so, yeah, just really want to thank you. But, you know, for everybody that's listening, my name is Tyler Ruzik, and I was a candidate in, in uh, the 2018 Republican primary for the Kansas gubernatorial election. Uh, I ended up not winning, unfortunately, but securing about two, 3,000 votes, um, and uh, the most out of all of the teens in the uh, Republican Party, because uh, there were more, there were multiple 
um, that ran. And I'm sure we'll discuss that. But, you know, I've always considered myself to be somebody who's very middle of the road, more moderate, and, you know, someone who just believes in finding, you know, common sense solutions to everyday problems. And, uh, you know, I can't wait to, you know, see where this conversation goes and talk, you know, kind of reflect and also look at how, you know, all that is going on right now. Absolutely. So we'll, we'll start off just looking back uh, <clears throat> with the 2020 election with you being a Republican for one. Uh, I don't know. Are you still, like a, I guess, a Republican? So, so I, I'm I'm now I'm now a registered Democrat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So well, let's talk about that, actually. What you know, I mean, I, I think that this would probably go into where I was going, because I was going to talk about just get your opinion on 2020 election in general. But. To start, uh, how would how have you felt about the Trump administration, and uh, and what led you actually to to leave the Republican Party? Well, you know, I, I will say I when when Trump was first elected, I think that the appropriate view to have, at least the view that I had, was keep an open mind. You know, let's cheer for him, let's root for him, let's make sure that you know, at least our president, you know, whether he was the president we wanted or not, at least succeeds in bettering our economy, bettering the well-being of everyday Americans, um, you know, X, Y, and Z, you know, just overall wishing him success and trying to keep an open mind. And I think I did a pretty good job of that at first, you know, seeing how fast at the beginning his administration was moving, how fast nominees were going through. It looked like, that this was going to be an administration that was at least going to be populist and, you know, have the common good in mind and the public interest in mind. But as we, as the days went on and we saw the administration evolve over time, we started to see, uh, overall the administration fall apart. You know, we've seen record numbers of aides and advisors resign. Um, Cabinet members have now been dropping like flies ever since the uh, Capitol Hill riots. So, uh, you know, looking at where we started and where we are now, this is a very, very, very different Trump administration. And I think it started out being very well-intentioned and at least having the common interest in mind. But I think Donald Trump, you know, he put members of Goldman Sachs in his cabinet, you know, also many Republican Party cronies to, you know, also run the departments of the U.S. federal government. So Trump very much did not drain the swamp. He made the swamp even bigger and even smellier and nastier. So, you know, we can look at his intentions and we can build on them, either either that being through a Democrat or a Republican administration, such as, you know, putting our country first, um, making sure that we get equal trade deals and so many other things. We can build on those. But, you know, those were great ideas that Trump had had. But quite simply, what is shown is that he had no experience and he couldn't execute and he just couldn't get his his agenda through. And it just shows... When you don't know what you're doing, you're not going to run the country that well. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely part of it. I think uh, <clears throat> what's interesting to see is, <clears throat> excuse me, what's interesting 
to see for me is um, I feel that with the Trump administration, like I kind of was with you in, in the sense of, um, you know, I, I didn't vote in 2016 because I wasn't old enough to, but um, neither was I. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if I would have voted for either side and uh, people will probably demonize me for saying that now, but Hey guys, hindsight is 2020, but <laughs> yeah, we're even we, uh, crazier now. <laughs> oh yeah. But when I look back, you know, the idea of rejecting the, you know, neoliberal order that we've had for 40 years, which Hillary Clinton 100% embodied, um, you know, the idea of rejecting that for an economic populist message. Uh, I, I'm, I'm critical of the way Trump approached immigration and the way he approached a lot of cultural issues out the gate, because I think that he leaned hard into the far right base of the Republican Party. And we're starting to see that come back to Biden big. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was an element of, you know, economic populism in the sense of, like you said, America first, in the sense of some of these trade deals coming back to to be more or fair. I mean, he, he said these things. He said he was going to try to bring jobs back to the country. These are things where it's like, hey, all right, we'll give you a shot, guy. Let's see what you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as you said, I mean, you know, out the gate when I saw Steve Mnuchin <laughs> and Goldman Sachs becoming the Treasury, uh, Treasury Secretary, I knew then there's a good chance the gig might be up. Uh, we're just going to keep going with the same kind of type of policies. And that's where I wanted to kind of, kind of wanted to ask you, like, with the 2020 election and, I mean, all, all the craziness we've seen, where people, you know, obviously the Democrat primary was very diverse, and uh, I personally am a little disappointed at the way it ended, but uh, it is what it is. We've got to move on. Um, when you look at a Joe Biden administration, man, and, and you see, like, their whole message is return to normalcy, one of the things I talk about on this show a lot is, like, we can't really return to normalcy. Like, if you think 2010 politics is normal, that's not good for a lot of people in this country. And I think that that's kind of like there's this effort of push by a lot of people uh, or I won't say an effort of push, but there is this this nostalgic view of like the Obama administration years that failed to acknowledge there was some still public policy failures that Mm -hmm. led to a lot of people saying, hey, Donald Trump would be a better president (laughs) than Hillary Clinton. Yeah. So. The question has to be like, you know, what do you think the Biden administration will, will be like and, and will it be any better to change the way we've kind of been doing things to assure that you don't get like a Trump reaction again? Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's a couple of things, you know, I'll first off and say I was a Bernie guy and I still am, you know, a, a huge huge supporter of, of Bernie Sanders. I think he would have been a great nominee. You know, I look at the results of this election and I think and I kind of think back and I'm like, eh, you know, I don't know if Bernie could have pulled this off, but, you know, maybe he might have been able to. But I, I you know, so I'm I'm a very big supporter of progressivism. You know, I, I would nowhere near call myself a democratic socialist or a social democrat. You know, I'm just a very simple, you know, liberal democrat. I definitely lean to the left, but, you know, I, I, I uh. I also really don't like kind of the labels that even Bernie himself would put um, on him and his supporters and his policies. You know, um, he didn't have to call himself a socialist to to yeah. make the point that uh, you know we we need progressive 
policies. We need a, a progressive mindset. You know, we need to reevaluate the way we think about healthcare. And that was very, very different from, you know, what Joe Biden has proposed. And what Joe Biden proposed was very much that not much is going to fundamentally change. You know, we're going to retend to, you know, what uh, return to as Francis Fukuyama calls the end of history, you know, uh, a time of predictability, a time of the continuation, as, as you mentioned, the neoliberal order. Um, and so, uh, you know, a, a Biden administration is a return to people's, you know, utopian <laughs> idea of normalcy, as I suppose what people, what I could say. You know, people really just kind of probably went in voting for Biden thinking that, you know, a Biden administration is going to bring us back to the Obama years, you know, where, oh, we've got this great, likable, charismatic president, you know, who's fighting for the people. Um, but, you know, what that shows is that voters very much really don't look um, much at the details. And of course, the devil is always in the details. Um, many Democrats in the primaries looked past the fact that um now, President-elect Biden, it was a huge supporter of the 94 crime bill um, that has created sort of the new Jim Crow of mass incarceration in the United States. Um, we also looked that uh, President-elect Biden was a supporter of the Iraq war. Um, and so, you know, uh, many Democrats would probably not maybe be as intervention interventionist as I am. But I think there are many Democrats who are much more pacifistic and are, you know, if they really considered that and had that information, they probably would have voted for somebody else. They probably would have voted for Howie Hawkins or Joe Jorgensen, probably not Trump, but, you know, or maybe written in a candidate. So I think a lot of that also has to do with the media. Um, the media is very, very anti-populist, very, very anti-working class. Um, and overall, I think is anti-U.S. taxpayer. You know, the media is very, very pro-elite. You see how it sucks up to Chuck Schumer, to Nancy Pelosi, you know, framing them as these great political heroes standing up to, you know, what they call, you know, the, the fascist, you know, administration of Donald Trump. Uh, you know, whether or not you believe that to be true, uh, what I think we could all agree on is that um, the mainstream media sensationalizes the actions of, you know, and heroicizes the actions of members of the Democratic Party elite. And they make them out to be these great political heroes fighting for the everyday people when in all reality, they're fighting for the same neoliberal order that the mainstream media and corporate media are also fighting for. The mainstream media does not care about the interests of working people, about the policies that like actual economic populist progressives like Bernie Sanders are fighting for. They don't care about those policies because those policies do not benefit them. The media and the state and also network television are private companies. They have their own interests, just as Fox News has their own interests. 
And as we will say, you know, if you watch MSNBC to get your news, you live in a totally different America than someone from Fox News does. So, you know, I, I think it's it's the fact of the matter is people take what they hear from their media outlet of choice at face value and they take it as fact. And, you know, they they really don't dive deep into the details. But of course, you know, we have to remember it's a lot to ask of voters to, you know, go out there, you know, find their own statistics, make the you know, decision for themselves, because quite frankly, the general public trusts the experts and the experts, unfortunately, um, do not have the best interests of the working class of America in mind. And as a result, I think that's why people like Bernie Sanders come in. You know, if uh, our if the elites of our parties aren't going to fight for us, it's time we start our own movement. Absolutely. And and. You, you touched on so much there. I'll say this. I think that, uh, I mean, I, I've told people all the time, like when, when it comes to this, I have not sat down and like watched the entirety of a MSNBC or uh, Fox News or any mainstream media news uh, casts in probably two years for sure, at least two years, uh, because it's not really news. And, you know, like one thing that Trump coined, it's it's one, almost one, like one sports about, journalism is is what I say. Oh, it's yeah. like sports journalism. I mean, yeah. One one thing with our like uh, recent uh, kind of few few years, like people will uh, that everyone has their issues with what Trump has said over the years, and uh, he certainly said a lot of things are wrong. One thing that we're like. Trump says fake news. He only really means that any news that criticizes him. <laughs> but like when he says fake news in the sense of like news is like a lot of mainstream news is not objective. It's not fair and does not present the entirety of the story or does not frame it in a way where the entirety of the story is at scope. Right. And so that's there's a valid kind of point to be made when you when you say fake news now like it's it's a part of our vocabulary in a way that like I don't think it's going to be you know taken away because Trump's gone I think it's going to be remaining because people have become more skeptical of the news in general now mm-hmm. and what I'm wondering is you know do do you think that um, with kind of the rise of, of new media and and you, you see like a lot of podcasts growing I'm a fan of uh, like Cal Kalinske on on YouTube. I'm a fan of the show Rising, which is on the Hills YouTube channel. There are two populists, one on the right, one on the left. They go after it. They keep the elites of both sides accountable and they provide information to the people. That is just straight facts. Um, And so when you see the rise of of people like that and and, like Joe Rogan too, when you have some guests on his show, like, I mean, he had Bernie on, right? I mean, he had Andrew Yang on, and that really kind of kick-started his campaign. When you see the rise of new media like this, do you think that that insular bubble type of viewership where people do just live in separate Americas, you think that may start to change? I think I think so. Um, I, I think it uh, it has uh, been, you know, that that it's been postured that way because of the fact that we live in a two party system and that they're very much, we view politics as a binary, right? You know, liberal or conservative. And so therefore 
there's there's very little you know gray area or in between right you know um you live in blue america red america conservative america liberal america and as i think you have pointed and well articulated a lot of that has to do with the fact of that you know people who are conservative really are getting their take and their you know holistic narratives from a totally different viewpoint from those of of the political left in the in america and the political liberals in america um and that didn't used to be that way right you know um Back in the, what, 50s and 60s, you had ABC, CBS, and NBC, and those were the main networks that everybody got their news from, right? You know, almost every American would get their news from Walter Cronkite, and uh, Walter Cronkite would tell you what was going on in the world, and people took it as that, and everyone was on the same page. But because of part of it, the internet, um, and the expansion of cable television as well, um, and talk radio, there's been a great oversaturation of information and oversaturation of just media in general, um, as to where it makes it very difficult for people to come to a consensus as to, you know, what's really going on in the world or what really happened on any given day. So people... I guess what I should say is that journalism is is starting to very much so trend away from the numbers, the statistics, the analytics, you know, the facts of the case, and is really going more towards yeah. the narrative. You know, it's it's almost like sort of a, a neo-gonzo journalism that has taken over political media and current event news coverage. So I think people get their information differently and, um, you know, they get different information based on, you know, what they listen to. And, you know, I will be a firm believer again, as I had already said, that if you wake up at seven in the morning and you turn on Morning Joe, you live in a very different America than somebody who watches Tucker Carlson at what, seven or 8 p.m. at night. So we live in a divided nation, plain and simple. And a house divided against itself cannot stand. So we really need to find a way to return to the idea of consensus building, of, you know, just trying to find common ground. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it a lot more, but that's my political philosophy. Meeting in the middle and not trying to go yeah. left or right. That's Andrew Yang's uh, campaign slogan from, from 2020. And, and that was, you know, I mean, that, that's that's one of the reasons why I support it. Yeah. But um, when, when we talk about, you know, let's let's get a little bit more into that. When you talk about, like, the ways, one of the ways I think that this division has happened is because starting particularly with Ronald Reagan, there's this push to focus the American people more so on cultural issues and 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 not to say like social issues aren't important those are important they play a great role in the way we conduct public policy but it became a situation where like 
that was the, the the major focus they tried to keep on like the the people on and like Reagan started that I think for the right and he brought in this sense of like the Republicans are just the Patriot Party and Democrats hate America <laughs> and then you know you have certain people that still believe that to this day and then you also have people who yeah. are like I think with the Clinton years they brought in neoliberalism in the sense of like yeah like the interests of major corporations come above the interests of the common man. And so because of that, I think both sides have pushed the people to be like more fired up and more divided on issues like abortion, uh, gay marriage, even though at that, you know, like now that's not an issue, but you know, it was for majority of our lives. Right. And things like that, yeah. Instead of a conversation about like economics, and when you actually start talking about economics, it's like, oh, well, both sides have kind of been screwing us for the past forty years, <laughs> and it and it lines up with this focus on <laughs> cultural issues and social issues instead of policy, like uh, particularly with the economy. So you know, I mean, how do you think we could get back to that place where we're able to really engage the people on? public on, on like economic policy that will like substantively help them and keep them engaged in a way that they you know uphold their leaders yeah and and you know i, I believe you know just kind of trying to remember you know and, and gather everything you say you know you kind of um from what i gather you know are sort of originating a lot of our political divide in the reagan years and um I think you're 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 very right in saying that. But what I would also say is that you know there there's also another side um, of that story of the Reagan years. And I think you know, love Ronald Reagan, hate Ronald Reagan. Um, he was very much so not the partisan politician that people make him out to be. You know, I for example, I would point to his relationship with Tip O'Neill, um, the longtime Democratic Speaker of the House. Polar opposites, great friends, you know? I mean, you know, people would say, oh, they'd go have a drink together every now and again, you know? And, and there's really just, I guess, what we're missing, you know, in, in, uh, in, in how we can sort of get back to that, you know, that, that relationship between, you know, Tip O'Neill and, and Ronald Reagan and, you know, finding, creating allies and polar opposites. Um, we have to return to the idea of fraternity and brotherhood um, because, you know, so much of the time now, um, Congress people and senators don't spend as much time in D.C., um, as they used to. They're always back in their districts, you know, um, and which is good. They're staying in touch with their, um, with their constituents and they're, you know, they're gathering ideas, you know, they're, they're listening to the voices of their, uh, some of, of the communities they represent. <laughs> That's a good thing. I but, said some of them are. <laughs> uh, yeah, go on. Yeah. Some of them are, some of them are, um, but there, there really used to be that culture of that, you know, you spend a majority of your time in D.C. And, uh, and therefore, you know, the people who you uh, 
worked across the aisle with were the people who you drank with, the people who you'd go out and, you know, smoke with or hang out with, you know, those were, you know, even though they were of a different party than you, they were your brothers by profession. And, you know, and so there was that great sense of fraternity among both men and women um, in Congress and in the Senate. And so, you know, are we ever going to return to that time of the good old boy, you know, era of politics, you know, where we always trust the guys, you know, the white guys with white hair and glasses, you know, to, to run our country. I think we've sort of come to the conclusion that, you know, there are many other voices that deserve to be heard in, in, uh, in government. And so I think we're getting past the good old boy era, but that's not to say that we can't sort of redevelop this new uh, framework of brotherhood, of, of fraternity between um, men and women of, in, in Congress, regardless of what party um, they are a part of. Um, we need to understand that we are in this constant struggle um, to preserve our democracy every single day. Um, whether that is being a citizen of the United States, getting up to work every morning, um, getting yourself in work and, and, you know, and contributing to this great economy, whether that is defending our country overseas, whether that is making laws in our state capitals or in Washington, D.C., you name it. There are so many ways that people involve themselves and contribute to the American success story. And we all need to understand we're all part of that vision of bringing this country together, you know, helping this country succeed. And I think once we all understand that we're all on the same team and we're not fighting for a politics that is left or right, but we're fighting for a politics that is forward thinking and is progressive and open-minded, I think we can bring everybody together. We can bring the country together. And yeah. eventually now we the, can get things the, done. The issue with, um, with like, uh, so, you know, you mentioned like Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, uh, and like how close they were together. I think that I would, I would push back on the on the idea of like, you know, politicians being more friendly is is I guess the best way to to go forward. Like in the sense of like, Tip O'Neill and and Ronald Reagan may have had a, relationship, a great relationship, but they that means they just worked together to put trickle, trickle down economics into place, which we know has not worked for four years, right? So it's like <laughs> there has to be for sure yeah. that you know ability to I, I think the way that Congress people demonize each other that's dangerous that's not good for for sure uh, AOC is not someone that's uh, you know trying to destroy this country and nor is Dan Crenshaw right but both of them have this idea of like you know this constant kind of adversarial role you know the the new type of right wing people that are rising up has this idea that they have to constantly be at battle with their Democrat counterparts in order to stay in office because their base is so, but, but that goes back to what I'm saying, man. It's like, okay, we have a situation where like, especially on the right, man, they are so set on this idea of like, the only thing that matters is the Supreme courts, (laughs) the, um, you know, making sure that certain, like I said, social policies remain in place, 
making sure that they can, you know, work toward a case to try and maybe overturn Roe, making sure that they can, you know, uh, uh, assure that gun laws aren't expanded. And there is no discussion of like, hey, economic libertarianism has been the doctrine of our party for 40 years and it has not worked. <laughs> and they told Reagan it wasn't going to work, but we didn't listen to them. Yeah. And we let the corporations have more of a say in Washington than the people. So what I'm wondering, I guess, is like, what, do you think that there'll be ever a place where there is a agreement on both sides to be more populist economically and you know i mean josh hawley and bernie sanders working together was a great example of that but then the next week josh hawley is you know inciting an insurrection so it's like well we gotta (laughs) we gotta have populism on both sides that isn't like crazy on either side so you know i guess what where do you Mm -hmm. think you know i think eventually one of the only ways we could fix this is with a, a populist uh, like majority Congress, right? And they have to be not this fake populism that mm-hmm. I think you see on the right a lot, uh, where they say a lot of things rhetorically that are populist, but they actually don't act on those. But people who like, like I mean, Josh Hawley is an example of like someone where like I mean, it's a love hate relationship constantly with that man, where he supports twelve hundred dollar checks for Bernie Sanders, mm-hmm. and then you know the month later he, like I say he. He does something crazy like he did the other week, but you know, do you do you see it kind of in, in the sense of we could be moving toward a more populist direction that's beneficial on both sides, or do you see it as you know, with Joe Biden getting reelected, maybe that's just a cementing of this line in the sand on both sides, and you know, Trump isn't helping, of course, in the Republican Party, but. You know, there's there's an atmosphere in the Republican Party where it's like if you don't support uh, stop the steal, then you may lose your job because you can get primaried and someone who's more Trumpian could win next time. So, you know, what do you what do you think about that? Yeah. Well, you know, um, I, I think you bring up a, a you know a lot of great points. You know, I I do want to talk a lot about Josh Hawley, um, for example, I. I, I will first preface, I'm a very, very big fan of Josh Hawley. I think he's a great senator. Um, he is, you know, for people who don't know at home, is the rep- is the representative of Missouri, which is just right next door to where I live. Um, you know, from where my hometown is, it's about a one or two minute drive from, you know, to get to Missouri. Just cross State Line Road. And, uh, you know, I think Josh Hawley has done a great job. Um, even better than his counterpart, Roy Blunt, at, you know, really accurately reflecting, I think, the way that people in Missouri feel. Um, You know, Missouri is a very, very politically diverse state. Um, He has many constituents, millions of them, who are, you know, more so progressive, more so liberal, who are going to support two thousand dollar stimulus payments and he's right out there on the front lines of congress fighting for those people who believe in certain sets of policies but also he has his principles you know we're definitely going to disagree probably on the way that you know he thinks about probably voter fraud how elections should work at the most basic level um but ideologically he, he is a populist at heart. 
as I would say the same for Ben Sass, for Bernie Sanders, and in uh, in many others um, in the Congress and the Senate. And I think this is just sort of our natural, um, this natural political trend that we're on is that you know people just want a people pleaser. <laughs> you know, somebody. You know, people are sick and tired of voting, you know, against something, you know, people, you're not going to get many people to the polls to just be like, all right, go use your ballot to say, you know, F you to Donald Trump. That's not a way to get people to vote for you. And that's no way to, you know, galvanize a voting base. You galvanize a voting base by encouraging people to get out and vote for something or for someone. You know, you want to run more positive campaigns, which is, you know, sort of the campaign that I tried to run. You know, you want to run a campaign that is much more big tent, you know, and that brings people together and says, you know, maybe you don't see eye to eye exactly on everything, but here's what I believe in. You know, I believe in the idea that universal healthcare is a human right. And if you vote for me, you're voting for universal health care. You know, not just that, oh, if you vote for me, you're voting against Donald Trump. No, you're voting for me. You're voting for everything I stand for. And, you know, and, and to have that mindset as a voter is powerful. It makes you believe in your vote. And, you know, it is what I was, you know, what I've always said, and I said a lot when I was on the campaign trail, is that there is a big difference between voting and being a voter. Voting, all that means is that you cast your ballot, you drop it in the ballot box, and you're on your merry way. But if you are a voter and you actively be a voter, that means that you're involved with the political movements of, of the day and that you are aware of, for example, as we have talked about this growing populist movement and you know what that means for you, your neighbors and the country as a whole. Um, so I, I think a lot of, you know, the division is caused to be quite honest by the election of bad candidates and that election of bad candidates is caused by a very, very uneducated voting base. And I think you and I would probably both agree. Um, the American people as a whole probably don't have the best idea as to, you know, the, you know, or at least don't have the best command of policies as to someone who, for example, like what we do, you know, study this and research this for fun or just for a living. You know, so, um, you know, I think people like us who are in that field also set a very unreasonable expectation of people, you know, right. So, you know, yes, we can say, yes, we have a very uneducated voting base and that's leading to the election of bad candidates. I believe that to be, you know, pretty much true. Um, but that doesn't mean that we have to orient people to follow a certain ideology or political belief. But what I think it really boils down to 
is getting back to the basics of civic education in every single classroom every year um, in, in public school in the United States. Civics is so important. And you know what? As long as we can get pretty much almost every American to at least understand the basic functions of government, they'll be able to form their own competent opinions. And, you know, we won't have to tell anybody else what, you know, they have to do or have to vote for, you know, they'll, they'll know exactly how the system works and they'll know what's good for them. And absolutely. Their neighbor. And, no, that is, I mean, that's spot on with really like, I, when I started this podcast at the beginning and I, and I maintain this as the main goal today, uh, just to better inform you folks that are listening and, and people that, uh, that, you know, that listen to the show, it's to better inform you on, on what's happening in, in our country and in our government. And, uh, and ho- my hope is that you will take this information. Um, I always encourage people to do their own research to, to assure that, you know, they can develop their own opinion and not just, you know, repeat what they may hear. Um, but, uh, you know, even if you don't do that, I'll try to do my best to be as truthful and as, uh, you know, I'm objective when I when I want to be, but I also am very clear where I have a bias. Um, and so, you know, I, I just my hope is that over the next few years, and and this is where I want to kind of end it with you going forward, looking at like our generation, where you know, I, I saw someone that was saying like because of the way we've seen politics just fail, uh, or at least government fail on so many levels our generation and and the younger people will probably be one of the most radical generations in in a a, a good while in american history um so do you feel that there's we're, we're heading in a good direction are you optimistic about the future um or or do you maybe feel that the challenges um require a little more than just uh getting you know i guess radical or or or, you know what do you feel may be best going forward uh to to really better the country and maybe get some of these populist policies implemented well you know first of all thank you so much again you know for these you know the points you've brought up and and the, uh, the tough questions, it's made me think, you know, very much so. And, and uh, has, it's been great, honestly. It's, it's just to be able to reflect. So, Calvin, I thank you so much for giving me this opportunity, honestly, just to sit down with you. I greatly appreciate it. So, you know, on to your question. Um, I'm not quite sure if we're headed into, in the right direction. Um, I think the last four years have been horrible for this country. And I think we've got a lot to do to build back better, as, as uh, the president-elect likes to say. Um, and, you know, we have a lot to do to get back, get back on our own two feet and, uh, you know, start walking on our own, you know, because... Uh, we are really, really struggling in this country. Uh, COVID is going to claim the lives of, you know, half a million Americans, I believe, you know, if it hasn't already. Um, 
And, you know, we, we have also seen uh, images that just haunt me to this day. I mean, I think back watching with my grandmother, just as it was kind of put out on Twitter and social media, the, uh, the video of George Floyd just being murdered um, in broad daylight. And I just remember watching that with my grandmother and, and, you know, sharing a tear, you know, at, at seeing that and being so moved and, and so disturbed at the same time. Um, a lot has happened in the past year. Um, many of it has not been good. And that's not just to say not good in general. I'm sure it has hurt, you know, you, Calvin, me, myself, and and the people listening personally. Chances are um, someone we know has, has died from this virus. Um, chances are at least a, a, fa- a direct family member has contracted it. Uh, there is also, you know, the fact of the matter is that many families in this country have been torn apart by the results of this election. You know, and, and as we talked about, you know, families now are split, you know, by living in two different Americas as, as to what it seems like. So we have a lot to do. And it's going to require a lot of effort, not just on the governmental level, but we need action. We need the proliferation of activism in this country on both sides, the American right and the American left. Everyone needs to be involved. Um, but I will always believe in this country and its capabilities in that we will always be that shining city upon a hill that the rest of the world looks at us and says, this is something we should strive towards. This is something we should become. And this is something, at least ideology-wise, something we should stand for. Freedom, liberty, justice, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, Those values have never changed, and they never will change no matter who's in charge. And so I believe in this country. I've seen what this country can do. And I know that amongst this great divide, our country will eventually come together again as well. Yeah, I certainly hope so. And um, I think that right now in this moment, in this present moment, uh, the U.S. may not be uh, an example for the world. <laughs> but I think that, uh, yeah. you know, there certainly are people in this world that, you know, believe in what America used to be and uh, what it should be. Um, I myself believe in what America should be. You know, I'm, I don't express this a lot on the show, but I always tell people, like, <clears throat> I'm, I do believe, like, I, I, I'm a big supporter of this country in, in the sense of, like, I love this country, and I love our citizens, I love our people, I love our culture, I love our history, good and bad, because it's made us who we are today. And... That's not to say that I love our government. <laughs> I love my country, but I'm not trying to say I love our government. And 
the thing is, is that the like there's this idea I think that, and it came from that you know strand of thought where it's like, you know, pot, like the uh, patriotism is like something that people started campaigning on at one point, you know, and like that ruined a lot of people's minds because it made it to where it's like, okay, anyone that critiques our country and the way our government makes decisions is un-American, is unpatriotic. And so, like, I'm I'm a big believer in, like, the very opposite, man. Like, if you really love this country, you're going to be striving and looking for ways that can be better all the time. All the time. And there's always going to be room for improvement in this country. And um, we have to break up the neoliberal and neoconservative order that's been running this government for the past 40 years. I think that, you know, that's a conclusion that we all, or at least uh, everyone that will listen to this show regularly should be able to make. And, you know, I'm sure that you, from your life experience and history, you know, understand that too. There has to be a change in the way um, overall... Uh, most government decisions are made and most economic decisions are made. And uh, and if that doesn't happen, man, I'm not sure what's going to happen to our country, but um, I always like to leave on a pretty optimistic note sometimes. I won't say always, but I think that I am more excited about the future than ever before because I think that this year has woke up a lot of people. And there's certainly a lot of people that would love to go back to sleep. There's people that when, when Joe Biden won, they're like, oh, thank God, I can just stop looking at Twitter all the time and seeing what the president says. That's insane to me. Yeah, it's it's brunch in America. There's a lot of those people, right? And those people, it's okay. Go off. I'd rather you not be a part of this movement right now because it sounds like you're not really about change. You're about what's comfortable for you, right? And so we need people who I think this year has woken up a lot of people where, or 2020 woke up a lot of people to where, there's not going to be any going back to sleep for a lot of this country. And they're going to be watching government and they're going to be keeping people accountable. And I think that's going to be one of the only ways we can push someone like Joe Biden to uh, to really act on some of those populist policies. But hey, Tyler, it was a heck of a conversation, man. And uh, is there anything you want to leave us with? Well, you know, uh, you know, again, I think everything is out there, you know, that I, you know, that, you know, that I've said, um, I'm so glad that, you know, you gave me this platform to speak on this because, you know, many a time it is that, you know, oh, everyone wants to know about the race, but, you know, they, they don't want to know about, you know, what I think about what's going on in, you know, the real world and, you know, and uh, what's going on. Uh, you know, with current events and politics now and and to just kind of sit back and have a conversation with you about everything that's going on. And it sounds like, you know, almost everything that's going wrong with this country, um, you know, it's refreshing. And I just encourage anybody listening to have conversations like the one that Calvin and I have had today. And I hope that um, listening to this at least spurs some conversation um, with others or within yourself, because, you know, uh, Calvin has brought up so many great points, so many great questions that I think 
you know, he is also really asking you all to answer for yourselves. And so, you know, um, I thought this was a great conversation and, you know, I, I'm so glad we, first of all, got to reconnect and, and really just, you know, go in and nerd out. Absolutely. Felt great. Hey man, thanks for coming on. And, uh, I look forward to hopefully having more conversations like this in the future, but, uh, thanks for listening folks. And hope everyone has a good one.